This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy. We are powered by BetMGM. And Ryan, before we get into hockey, I I think we have to talk about what many people are calling the greatest NFL game of all time. I was reacting that way. I was in the moment for the Bills-Chiefs game on Sunday night, and I wasn't sure if I was just caught up in it, but I was tweeting I thought it was the best game since the the Rose Bowl between USC and Texas with Vince Young on Texas and Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, that team. So obviously the discourse after was about NFL overtime rules. Where do you land on this? Are you feeling sorry for the Bills about the coin deciding it, the Harvey Dent result of the game? Or do you think, no, you, you needed to make a stop? I, I feel bad for Buffalo fans. And the funny thing was, I wasn't watching the game. I was watching a hockey game uh, in the afternoon, and then I went on Twitter, and everyone was freaking out, saying it was going into overtime. So I'm like, ooh, I got to turn this on. So I only saw overtime. I didn't even see the coin flip. And obviously, yeah, Patrick Mahomes got a score. He's going to score. So I felt really bad for the Bills and Josh Allen for not even getting a chance. Now I understand the argument make the stop, but I think you you at least have to like give them a shot. Yeah, I think I land there as well, and like you said, you could argue, well, the Bills, if you're upset that you lost, why couldn't you make a single stop? But the way Buffalo was playing offensively in that game, Gabriel Davis as well, I don't think Kansas City was going to make a stop either, so it really yeah. did feel like the coin decided that game. So it kind of, to me, did highlight the deficiency, and it's such an easy fix. Just say each team gets the ball once. So even if Kansas City marched, Buffalo has to score a touchdown on the next possession, but at least they get one shot to equal it. I think that's a pretty reasonable And I did see a stat that with these new overtime rules, whoever wins the coin flip is 10-1. and Yeah, so it's it's the coin bowl. Maybe that's what people will call it down the road, the coin bowl. Coin gate? That's right. They're going to call it coin gate. Oh, yeah, it's definitely coin game. There's always a gate. I feel like I'm one of the people that drives the gate narratives. Like, I turn everything to gate. Like, if someone steals a cookie in my house, I call it cookie gate. You're part of the problem. I am. I am. Problem gate. That's right. Uh, And speaking of problems, we are going to start the Hockey News Podcast with a problematic discussion or problematic topic, of course. Uh, It's been a very tough month for racism in hockey, especially just the the timing of these incidents we have at the beginning of the month the hda launches the tape out hate campaign then just within a days or a week or however long the gap was you have in the ahl christoph Rabic gets the 30 game ban for a racial gesture toward boko Mama. and then of course the big discourse of the past week or several days has been jacob panetta in the echl the alleged racist gesture to jordan suman of course there's a he said he said, or, or what's the, I'm going to say, he, he said, said, she said. said. Yeah, he said, he said is what I'm looking for there. Um, so we're not going to litigate every forensic detail of what went down because, of course, Jordan Subban is claiming absolutely it was a racist gesture. We have Panetta denying it. We have him giving an interview that came out today in which teammates were backing him up. I'm not sure. I don't think that's productive to discuss that element of it. We know that no matter what happened, it was very triggering and upsetting to Jordan Subban. There's something to learn from that. We know P.K. Subban came out just talking about the fact that he wants the hockey world to focus on how we can change. And I think that's what we should do here today as well, uh, before all the d- details come out in the investigation. Uh, so I guess the first question I want to ask is, do you feel like hockey will ever be for everyone, or have these incidents really set the game back? I mean, that's the hope, right? And we've talked a lot as a, a hockey community about how slowly progress comes. And, you know, if I'm looking at the 
the, I don't know if silver lining is not the right word, but if I'm looking for progress, you know, the fact that Harabit got 30 games, you know, if this was five, 10 years ago, what would the suspension have been? You know, go far back enough, there probably wouldn't have been any punishment whatsoever. So in, in that respect, it's good to see things moving forward in that regard. Um, you know, it's good to see teams take this thing seriously. But, you know, it's, it's a big structural thing. And I think when, you know, you listen to players from the Alliance, you know, there's these things that happen on the ice. There's the things that they have to deal with in social media as well. And there's a lot of microaggressions along the way, um, you know, right from the time that these players are kids and coming up in minor hockey. So I think it's, it, it has to be an awareness from... Um, you know, the, the typically white hockey community that there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on at every level. And it's going to take a lot of people changing their minds and realizing the hurt that they're causing for us to get to a place where hockey can be for everyone. And it, I think the problem is, you know, it, for a lot of people, they don't see the other side. So, for example, you know, I did an interview with Ryan Reeves I guess it was a year ago now, and he was talking about, you know, early in his career, you know, at an early training camp, he had a coach uh, basically upbraid him for wearing his hat backwards. He's like, why do you got to, why do you go wear your hat backwards? You know, this is hockey. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, I wear my hat backwards all the time. No one's ever commented on me wearing my hat backwards right. anywhere. Um so, so that's just one little instance, and I'm sure Ryan Reeves has had plenty of instances since um, that he's had to deal with that, frankly, most of us don't have to deal with. So I think it's that understanding and that empathy that's going to get us to a better place. And also, frankly, you know, when something is cut and dried, when something is you know, figured out that, like, yeah, that gesture was made, you know, whatever the case may be, that you know, we really have to bring the hammer down. And again, you know, with the AHL, 30 games, that, that's a good message. Um, that has to be the standard from here mm -hmm. on out. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think you make a good point about, obviously, there are the overt examples, but there are a lot of covert examples, the microaggressive examples of racism, the tiny little daily barriers that I think people in the BIPOC community have to go through. And I say I think because I can't identify knowing truly what the experience is like. It's something that obviously we have to try and learn more about. But it's everything from just, you know, the comments that are made toward P.K. Subban for his sense of style and clothes are different. The word, words like flamboyant, mm. right? Those tiny little microaggressions. But also when it comes to the macro, the things like the instance that happened with Amama and Jordan Subban, I think it's tough. To me, any form of tolerance that isn't zero tolerance to me is literally tolerance. So even a 30-game ban, if... You know, if this happened at a bank and an employee made a racist gesture mm. blatantly toward another that was caught on camera, you wouldn't say, well, you know, you're going to sit, you're going to stay home from work for 30 days and then you're going to come back and sit in a cubicle beside the person you insulted. No, that person would be fired. Mm. And to me, by showing any degree of tolerance, that sends a message that we're going to put up with this to a point. You know, we're going to let you sit for 30 days, but then, yeah, you can come back. You got your slap on the wrist. And I call it a slap on the wrist. In the grand scheme of things, if you look at the career of the, of the offending player, 30 games is not going to be devastating, right? Uh, and if we look at the example with Panetta and Subban, and like we said, we're trying not to, to sort of pick apart the entire incident yet because if you're listening to this podcast, there might have been new revelations about the investigation by the time you're listening to this. But if we focus on how Subban felt about what happened, at the very least, I think going forward, we can teach 
about what types of gestures can be triggering, whether it's intentional or not. I think there's at least a responsibility. Even if Panetta is proven innocent, there's still a responsibility to know what you're doing with your body and how a certain type of player from the BIPOC community could perceive that, right? So that's the bare minimum, I think, to sort of train players on the consequences of their actions, whether they are intentional or not. Um, it's been a very busy news cycle. It feels like it has been a lot lately, and there's some good news and bad news, but this would be in the positive category. Uh, Keith Yandel, we know, on Monday night, he ties Doug Jarvis's Ironman streak, 964 games. Uh, so, And he's going to, on Tuesday night, we're recording this podcast Tuesday afternoon, uh, but or Tuesday morning, but he will be breaking the record at 965 Tuesday night. Uh, so I have a couple questions about that. The first one is, how important is this record in your mind is it something that could qualify qualify someone like Keith Yandel for the Hall of Fame, or is it just more of a nice story, an impressive story? I think it's a nice and impressive story. Um, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of hard work went into him getting that record. Um, and, it, you know, it is one of endurance and duration, and the fact that Keith Yandel has been a valuable hockey player for so long. Um, but having said that, it's not a Hall of Fame thing to me because... You know, if you look at Andrew Cogliano, who had a great Ironman streak, it was wrecked by a suspension. And one that I recall at the time was a little like, you know, it's like maybe it's a suspension, maybe it's not. Um, so, you know, these things can be snapped in an instant. Um, so I, I don't think you can give a guy Hall of Fame credentials simply for playing so many games. But, I mean, huge tip of the cap because... You know the speed of which the game is played right now, and and how easy it is to get injured. I mean, for Yandel to be a, a contributor at a, a fairly high level. I mean, he's had his ups and downs, but I mean, he, he's had some really good seasons. So uh, to me, it's a big tip of the cap. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, it, it's a a great accomplishment, especially if you look compared to other sports. You know, you have the level of body contact, roughly, of football. You have the rough schedule configuration of basketball. So you're playing a much longer schedule, about you know almost five times the length of an NFL schedule, but with full body contact to be able to play that many games in a row is really amazing. I still think if you look at what the GOAT streak is, it's still baseball to me, the sheer length of the streak. So Cal Ripken Jr. played 2,632 games. And if you divide that in two, because baseball season is almost double, almost exactly double a hockey season. If you divide that number in two, it's still well over 1,300. So it really mm -hmm. puts in perspective how incredibly long that streak was. I, I still think it's the streak of all streaks, but to me, Yandels is going to be number two. And... The other question I have, and this is you know, after I, I even spoke to Doug Jarvis yesterday as part of his presser, and we asked uh, the media that were on hand asked a few questions about this, but how do you rank the streak that Jarvis put together versus Yandel's? Is one more impressive to you than the other? Hmm. I mean, that's a great question. I, I think that to me, Yandel's might be a little more impressive because the game is so much faster. And I know you have some good anecdotes, so I won't spoil them about Jarvis and what he went through for that streak. Um, but the competition just to simply stay in the NHL these days, I think, is so much more mm -hmm. than it ever has been because you truly have the most global game possible. Um, and you have so much growth in players in countries like the United States. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is so much more prominent in the NHL now than it was during Doug Jarvis's days. Um, so I, I think it's a little more impressive now, but I mean, hey, 
Kudos to Doug Jarvis as well. For sure. And it's weird. There's a weird paradox in play because if you look at Doug Jarvis's era, it was less safe when you were out on the ice. Yes. Fighting was an, an, it reached its all-time high during the, the, his streak, which started in the early 70s, went to the late 80s. And, you know, players didn't all wear helmets. Almost no players wore visors at the time. There was no Rule 48.1 for a legal check to the head. So it was a lot easier to have something horrible done to you when you're on the ice. At the same time... Teams and doctors were more ignorant about health precautions, so that actually worked in favor of a streak. And Doug Jarvis did tell a crazy story yesterday in which he got hit from behind. He suffered a major concussion. He had stitches. He blacked out. And as he said on the call yesterday, I wouldn't have been allowed to play the next game. Today, that streak would have been over. At the time, they were like, come on, get it back. Come on, son, get back out there. And he did. And he kept playing. Jarvis. And that's the ironic thing is today with Yandel, the game is safer, but because of that safety, there are a lot more precautions in place that mm. will take players out of games or and streaks. Because if you do take a hit like that, you don't go into concussion protocol, you're out, right? Yeah. Obviously, we have COVID protocols. That would, that would knock you out as well. And the Andrew Cogliano example you gave, it's a lot easier to get suspended, to make yeah. a mistake. And Cogliano was not a dirty player by any means, and he still managed to slip up once after 830 games and yeah. get himself suspended. So it's even impressive that Yandel's never accidentally you know, tripped a guy who went headfirst into the boards, anything, because he's a defenseman. You're engaging physically, even if you're not a physical player. So to me, there are more obstacles that Yandel's had to overcome yeah. because of the fact that it's, it's ironic because all the safety measures that actually make the game safer make it more likely that a player has to miss time, right? So yeah. to me, I give the edge to Yandel, but I can see the argument for both sides. Uh, just before we started this podcast in the Olympics, the Olympic news, of course, uh, Team Canada, the men's roster, was announced. It was leaked yesterday, so we knew, and there were no changes once it came out today. Yeah. Although the only thing that was nice was we got to see a different graphic that didn't have that terrible font where the Gs look like Qs. Right. So we can really confirm the names seeing yeah. the graphic that came out today. <laughs> but I'm curious, what are your initial reactions to this roster? Are you enthused? Are you unenthused? What are you thinking? I mean, I'm generally enthused. <laughs> about the Olympics at this point. Um, but when I looked at the roster, my initial thought was, those are some big boys. I, I think Canada's going to give a lot of teams problems. Like, Eric Stahl's a big guy. Jack McBain's a big guy. Eric O'Dell's only 5'11", but he's 205 pounds. Like, Adam Cracknell's a big guy. Adam Tambellini's a big guy. Mason McTavish might only be a teenager, but he's strong. And, like... He ripped up the Swiss League last year when the OHL was on hiatus. Like, he was physical. He was initiating contact. And now he's going to be playing against, you know, a slightly better competition than he was because he was in the Swiss Second League. But, you know, I look at that roster up front, and they're going to be tough to slow down. They're pretty deep down the middle, and they're big. And then, of course, you've got guys like... Hosang, Desarnay, Wheel, who are, you know, more like skilled players. So you've got the bulk and then you've got the skill. That's a nice little marriage there. You've got Owen Power on the back end. You've got good puck movers like Mark Barbario. Lots of experience back there. And then, of course, in net, Devin Levi, uh, who's been sort of the shutout king of the NCAA this season. Uh, although he's had trouble against really good teams. Mm -hmm. um, so that should be said. But, you know, they've got... Goalie options, you know, Pasquale is an international vet, you know, playing over in Europe, that is. Um, you know, Matt Tompkins is pretty decent. Um, so, you know, they've got options. And, you know, I look at it and it's like, yeah, it's a pretty good team. Yeah, I, th I don't think it's unreasonable to say it's, you know, a top three team in the tournament on paper. Totally. I wouldn't say I'm enthused. It's just hard because you're not you're not juxtaposing it with all the other rosters at the same time. So you're looking at, at it and comparing 
it in your mind what to what could, could have, have been. been. Yeah. Even or you're also looking for Connor Bedard on that list, of course. Uh, but if you break it down like you have, I can see the appeal. Uh, great leadership from Eric Stahl. I like the fact that you did inject some upside with Mason McTavish mm-hmm. and Owen Power for sure. Levi, to me, we were talking about it before the show started. I think he's going to start because of the fact that there's a me- media availability later today, mm-hmm. and he's one of the only players talking. And if he's just going there, as Stephen Ellis, our producer, pointed out, he's still in school. If he's just going over there to sit on the bench and, and take on all the COVID risks, it doesn't right. really make sense. So to me, I think we can conclude, or, or at least assume, that he is going to be the starter. Uh, and I'm excited for the Josh Hosang story. It would be really cool to see this redemption arc where he finally gets a chance to play bigger minutes and show what he can do, because obviously right. he's had a lot of roadblocks in his career. Uh, so that will be fun. I think there's enough of a fun factor that this team should be pretty interesting. Again, I say it with a slightly mopey face because I just can't, you know, it's it's... It's crushing to sort of realize we're never going to get to see a, a team that has, you know, Connor McDavid and Nathan McKinnon and Sidney Crosby all together. Yeah. You know, uh, so it, it is unfortunate, but um, I think with the, con- the conditions that we have here, I think it's a pretty solid looking roster. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning about uh, Kent Johnson. He's he's one of the reserve players. So, yes. yes. So that's interesting because he is missing school to come and basically just sit around. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Okay. That's a good Justin point. Justin Pogge's back there. We have a Justin Pogge bobblehead over there indeed and funny story about justin pogey i was doing a story on him it was where are they now and the day that i was talking to him i found that bobblehead in the office like buried away and i was wow. like dude i found a bobblehead of you today <laughs> 10 minutes ago and he was like oh my god and i took a picture and yes, sent it to him fate. he was like oh my god that's what are the odds uh, the Vancouver Canucks making some major news over the past week. Of course, last week they hire Rachel Dory, who, of course, was doing a lot of work for us. Uh, so congratulations, Rachel. And she'll be an analyst in the analytics department. And, of course, they hire Emily Castonguay as assistant GM, which is just groundbreaking as, as a hire, of course. She's the first female assistant GM in NHL history. Second. Who, 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 Anaheim had one. Oh, Anaheim had one? Yeah. I thought, I thought she was day. first. Oh, yeah. there you go. I'm wrong. I apologize for that. Uh, but... We know they're going to bring fresh experience to the fray. That's why the, that's what the Canucks are trying to do. They are trying to completely blow things up, of course, moving away from the Jim Benning era. And I'm curious, what do you expect to see as a result of this change? What experience do they bring to the table, and, and how do you think it's going to shape the Canucks going forward? Angela Corbett, by the way. That's, oh, yeah, it's okay. the, yeah, that was the Anaheim one. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, starting with Castingay, because this is somebody that I've interviewed before um, for our money and power issue, because obviously she came from the player agency world. Um, so, you know, what I expect from her is uh, a really good background in contract negotiation. And this is kind of a fun story. The very first NHL contract that Emily Castingay negotiated was Matthew Joseph for Tampa Bay. So she was negotiating with Steve Eiserman and Julian Brisebois. So that was sort of a fun way to kick off her uh, pro career. And then, of course, you think, okay, well, she's already got familiarity with a lot of GMs in the league because she was also the agent for Alexi Lafreniere, who went first overall to the New York Rangers. Now, of course, we didn't know it was going to be the Rangers until the draft lottery. So, you know, Lafreniere would have talked to a lot of teams. Uh, And I should point out that even after the draft lottery, when you get to the draft combine, uh, even a player that you know is going first overall, a lot of teams schedule interviews with that player because they just want to pick their brain to see what they're about. So Casting Game knows a lot of GMs already just from you know the work that she was doing uh, with her player agency, Momentum Hockey. Um, 
you know, she played the game, uh, NCAA hockey at Niagara, uh, obviously has a, a great business background as well as the sort of the legal side of being an agent. So I think that you're getting somebody that has really good experience as a negotiator and has seen things from the other side as well, which, you know, again, we're seeing this as a bit of a trend, mm-hmm. agents becoming uh, management. So I think that's uh, the big thing with casting gay. And a little part of me kind of thinks, you know, Jim Rutherford is the interim GM. Who's to say that he doesn't hang around for a couple of years in Vancouver and then Castingay becomes yeah. the GM? Kind of a Kyle Dubas situation with Lou Lamorello. Exactly, yeah. because yeah. you want to put people in a position to succeed. And Castingay is still pretty young. So, I mean, she's got a long career ahead of herself. She's assistant GM now, but if she gets, you know, she learns the ropes and, and gets a, a feel for the organization as a whole, I mean, how long before you just sort of give her the reins? I mean, maybe you go straight from Rutherford to Castingay. Mm-hmm. Just just a theory on my part. Um, as for uh, Rachel Dory, um, obviously the analytics background, she's worked for an NHL team before. You know, she did time with the New Jersey Devils. So you have somebody that has a strong voice which I know a lot of teams like. I mean, you don't want everybody to have a strong voice, but you want to have a mixture. Mm-hmm. And you have somebody that you know is very clear uh, with their analysis and their uh, opinions on players and uh, player development. So you're getting somebody that's going to give you their opinion and is going to back it up with data and analysis. And I think that's really important these days is, you know, it's kind of a nice... Uh, Thing to have a mixture of like old school and new school when it comes to scouting and player development. So I think, you know, you're getting somebody that, again, is just at the beginning of their career with an NHL franchise. So uh, to, to use hockey parlance, a lot of upside with both hires. Yeah, for sure. Very well said. Very good breakdown. Um, and I, I saw a, tw- a tweet. I forget who the tweet came from, but I thought it was a really interesting point. The idea that the, because the Canucks are blazing a trail with these hires, if you're the first to wade into these waters or, waters, or one of the first teams to wade into these waters, you have your pick of all the best talent available. If True. other teams aren't looking for female hires in this space, then if you're the if you're the one doing the looking, you have your pick of all the best, best candidates, mm-hmm. right? So you're bringing in really interesting, experienced people. And like you said, Castanguay, she checks so many different boxes. I love the fact that her experience is just so diverse because we've seen the experience, the experience edge from the agent world that Bill Zito, for example, has brought with the Panthers. You have that experience working on both sides of a negotiation. It helps you understand players a lot better. We talked about it on the podcast recently. And you can throw out any of the, have you played the game? You know, the bro with the Oakleys on, and the goatee on Twitter. They can't say that. She played the game at a very high level. And what's fascinating to me is the finance degree on top of the legal degree because you look at the history of various GM hires. You have former players, former enforcers who are crunching the cap. And now you have Castlingay, who has an actual financial background. Mm-hmm. It's going to have a leg up on the competition for management of the cap, I think, in terms of the skill in that area. And with Rachel Dory, she's, she was the youngest analytics employee in, in NHL history. Uh, and I know, obviously, she's worked with us, but I never got to work with her directly because she wasn't here that long. Yeah. Um, but I know her reputation is as someone who sees the game in a different way than many. She can pick up on things watching the game that other people can't. The analogy I can, that it kind of makes me think of is in season one of The Wire, when you have Bunk and you have Bunk and McNulty going through a crime scene, they talk about having soft eyes, right. and it's almost like Rachel can see the game. She can pick up on things that other people can't, like mortal people can't, just watching a game. So she brings the analytics and, of course, the using empirical data, but also the ability to be an observer of the game. So she's like analytics and eye test almost put together, which to me is extra fascinating, and. 
it's going to be neat to see the Canucks moving away from the Jim Benning era because I think it was sort of punctuated by kind of old school decisions. Oh, we need a defenseman. Well, let's bring in Tyler Myers. He's big. He's tall. Let's bring in Oliver Ekman Larson. He's a big name, even though analytically he's been terrible in recent seasons, right? So I think we're going to see the Canucks moving far away from those types of old school decisions, those tired old decisions, and. I think it's going to be extremely fascinating to see how they remake their team. I would expect in the years to come some pretty major wholesale changes to the construction of the roster. So to mm-hmm. me, I think that's extremely exciting to think about. They're going to be a fun team to watch for the next couple of years. Uh, another fun team to watch of late, if you're a fan of this team, the Pittsburgh Penguins. And this is bizarre. I feel like we have this conversation about the Penguins every year. There's a cycle in which people write off the Penguins. We, we think they're finally finished as contenders before the season starts. Many people pick them to miss the playoffs. They get riddled with injuries. Then they overcome the injuries, and people start talking up Mike Sullivan as coach of the year. They make the playoffs as a surprise. They do this every year. Even the year that they won the Cup in 2015-16, they did that. Right? They were, they were out of a playoff spot, and then Sullivan took over. Yeah. But... How are they doing this in your mind? And and do you believe that we can consider them an actual playoff contender? Or do you think the pattern, because what I left out, the other half of the pattern is, then they bomb out of the playoffs in the first round. Right, since right. 2017, right? They bomb out early. They went out in the second round in 2018, and then first round exits since. Mm. So is this just the same old story again? Are we going to see a nice surge of momentum from a Penguins team that bombs out? Or do you think there's something legitimate building here in terms of a case as a Stanley Cup contender? Mm. Well, I think it could be different this year. Uh, one, they're probably not going to have to play the Islanders in the playoffs, so that will help them. Uh, also, um, you know, Tristan Jari obviously has had a huge rebound year, and it's interesting because I, I interviewed Mike Sullivan, uh, ironically, again, for our Money and Power issue this year, and you know, I asked him about all the injuries that they had and, and how they were able to persevere you know, without guys like Crosby and Latang and Malkin in the lineup at different points. And he said, you know, look, we have this great leadership group, and we have this mentality that the next guy steps up. And obviously, you know, we've seen that with guys like Evan Rodriguez and Brian Rust having just an incredible season. Um, so, you know, you're getting guys who follow the likes of Crosby and Latang and Malkin. And, you know, Brian Dumoulin is another guy that you can toss in that category. And, you know, again, with Crosby, it's, it's not just what he does on the ice. It's his preparation off the ice. He controls everything that he can control. So whether that's in the gym, whether that's in the video room, you know, Sid is all about doing everything he can. So when you have a guy like that at the top, everyone follows along. And so you've got this really great culture in Pittsburgh. You know, we've talked about the Bruins having a great mm-hmm. culture. Pittsburgh's right there as well. And, you know, with Jari... You know, I I asked Sullivan about him, and he's like, look, I thought he played well last year, except for, obviously, the playoffs. That was two weeks out of ten months. So there's, you know, there was still a ton of faith in the offseason in Tristan Jari. You know, Sullivan said, you know, this is a guy that we have a a great communication with. You know, he's great at, uh, you know, talking to the coaches, a very talented player. And, and they believe in him. Mm-hmm. And I think Jari has rewarded that faith this year by really bouncing back. So, you know what? You look at the playoffs, and that's a tough division. Anything can happen. But I think we have to sort of give Pittsburgh a clean slate at this point because they've gone through, I would say, more adversity than even they're used to. Yeah. And Jari has rebounded. So, yeah, goaltending is... You know, let them down a couple of times. It was Matt Murray before that, mm-hmm. uh, even though Murray got them two Stanley Cups. Uh, you know, obviously Marc-Andre Fleury helped as well. Um, but, you know, if, if Jari 
can be steady, then you know this is a team that you got to look out for. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm as confident as you are, but I am impressed with what we've seen, and I think it is a result of the system the Penguins play, uh, and it's it's the very reason why they're able to turn seemingly marginal prospects from the AHL into viable NHLers, whether it was Connor Sheary, even Jake, Jake Gensel, was, it's not like he was a first-round pick, right? Yeah. Brian Rust, uh, and now Evan Rodriguez as well. What he's done is, is stunning this year, and they're all fast. That's the system, right? And we've talked about it for years. It's how they won the cup, and people started to copy them. I remember talking to Sullivan about that, that he knew every team was going to start copying their blueprint, which was quick passes, stretch passes, using the speedy forwards, having a decor that was pretty nondescript other than Chris Letang, mm-hmm. and their job was just to fire that biscuit up the ice. That's right. right. And the system still seems to work, and that's why when you lose your stars, you, you keep churning it over, and they play fast. The problem is, if we look at the pattern of Stanley Cup winners, what then happened was you had teams that took the speed element and skill of the Penguins game, but then added size. Mm. So Washington comes in and starts bruising people. Same with the St. Louis Blues. The Lightning were very versatile as well. And to me, the Penguins style, it works in the regular season. It doesn't work the same way in the playoffs right now because we know the game is just called differently in the playoffs. You can watch for it, actually. I have an interview with Director of Officiating, Stephen Walcom. It's going to come out later this week, and I ask him about that. And he gives a very interesting answer. Um, but we know the Penguins right now, they're 17th in the league in average height, more importantly, 27th in the league in average weight. And throughout the Mike Sullivan era, they've consistently been one of the smallest teams in the NHL. It was great. It helped them sort of take take the league by surprise when they won those two cups. But once teams sort of caught up to them, I think that's a big reason why they bombed that early. If you look at the teams that are knocking them out, right? The Islanders, it was Capitals and then the Islanders, right? Yeah. So I think their inability to adapt in the postseason will come back again because, again, this is still not a very big team. It's not a team that's built for trench warfare. So I think we're going to see this whole movie play out yet again. Great regular season and then a disappointment in the playoffs unless they go out and get multiple big, tough pieces to add. Not just one. I think you need to add two or three guys to really, I guess in the literal sense, to tilt the scale. Yeah. Yeah. Or you get Jake Gensel a gift certificate for Permanente Brothers. Yes. (laughs) Either one would work. Yeah, help them grow. That's right. so we're going to stick in Pennsylvania, and now we, now we have to talk about the Philadelphia Flyers, who are going through the opposite experience. That's a team that, that I thought looked much better on paper going into the season, especially when you add Ryan Ellis, Rasmus Ristolainen, eh, Cam Atkinson, a good addition as well. Yeah. Uh, and they've lost, I believe it's 12 games in a row now. Uh, obviously, we know they have gone through a lot of injuries. Sean Couturier hasn't played in a month. Ryan Ellis hasn't played in longer than that, I yeah. believe. Um, you have Kevin Hayes and Joel Farabee are banged up now, too. So, yes, you can partially blame injuries, but you can't completely blame injuries. It's been a disastrous season. So what on earth do you do with this team? It seems like they should be so much better based on what they have on paper, but it's just not happening. Is it time to blow it up? Yeah, I think it's time to blow it up. And, you know, the timing is kind of decent for that because obviously Claude Giroux becoming an unrestricted free agent in the summer. So... You know, I, I, there's already, I know, on THN.com, uh, you know, Rumor Roundup has talked about Giroux moving on. Uh, I've even heard Toronto as a, a possible destination. I'm not sure how that works cap-wise, but I'll leave that to uh, the Leafs to figure out and, and the Flyers as well. You know, you know, Mike Yo, he's interim coach right now. Um, I, I think it's, it's fine, but, you know, they need... It's it's so tough because you don't want to go through so many coaches. Obviously, they've already fired one. They have an interim coach now. Um, but, you know, you got to look forward. And I think if you blow it up, then you blow it up. You get a new coach, maybe somebody who grows into the role. Um, you know, it's just it's a lot of details. And I do believe that if Ryan Ellis 
hadn't got hurt so early, maybe this is a totally different story. But, you know, they're just bottom 10 in a lot of different categories. Um, you know, they give up a lot of high danger uh, scoring opportunities compared to how many they get. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's a pretty big problem. And it's just it's just not coming together. So I think I think you do have to look at that next generation and say, okay, Joel Farabee has shown us a lot so far when he's been healthy. We got Cam York. Carter Hart's still pretty young in net. Maybe he's not gonna be that like Vesna candidate, but he could still be a solid number mm-hmm. one. So what can we do now to build for the future? Because if you look at that division, it's pretty tough right now. And it's not going to get any easier in the coming years. The Rangers are really good right now. They're going to be really good for a number of years. Same with Carolina. Mm-hmm. You got Washington and Pittsburgh. Devils are on the ascent. You know, the Islanders, bad year, but I think they can probably rebound next season. So if you're the Flyers, you sort of say to yourself, who are we right now? Mm-hmm. And what can we become? Can, if we take a step back for a couple of years, what can we become? Can we, can we hang with these guys? I think that's the big question right now in Philly. Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, and it's strange when you break down that core, it, it should be promising, right? And I think, like you yeah. said, Sean Couturier, I still think can be one of the best two-way centers in the league for a long time, Ivan Provorov. And Carter Hart, I still think is going to be part of the solution. He's still very young. He actually has had a bounce back season. It doesn't necessarily show on the surface stats, mm-hmm. but if you look, his goal saved above average per 60 is actually above average, which is remarkable considering the workload he's had to face, the high quality shots. He's been peppered. He's been hung out to dry this year, and he's actually being he's graded out as an above average goaltender at five on five so to me that's a big accomplishment he's not been the problem this year even though it might not look like his numbers have improved dramatically so i think you have to give him credit um i think if you trace back what happened what went wrong to me it's the nolan patrick pick because if you talk to the flyers a few years ago and said okay where are you going to be in 2022 if you went to the day of the 2017 draft you say where are you going to be in 2022 you'll say we're going to be a powerhouse team with our number one center nolan patrick leading the way it didn't work out and now if you look organizationally you don't have that you don't have that horse to build around that's going to be your dominant play driver and I think that's what's missing that's what the Flyers are going to need to draft and start over and I think it just shows the importance yes Couturier of course is working as your number one center on our championship team though you want him to be your number two your two-way guy mm. and then have a pure offensive machine as your number one guy I believe yeah. right and the Flyers don't have that they've been stronger on the wings so I do think you have to have to look at selling off pieces. It's it's easier said than done. Drew's an easy sell. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can get someone to take uh, to eat or if you eat half JVR's salary, maybe someone takes on two years of him. But half that, that's still three and a half million for yeah. this year and next year. So it's not an automatically an easy sell there at all. And then you have some veteran guys like Kevin Hayes that I think their contracts are going to take on water pretty quickly and they're signed for a while. So it's yeah. not like you can tear down this entire thing. Sometimes that works in a team's favor where you think a team's rebuilding, they can't get rid of all their pieces, and then a few things change, and then the team gets good again, and you still have those veteran guys around to help, kind of like what would happen with Montreal when the perfect storm hit last year. Uh, But you do have to sell off what you can. Rasmus Ristolain is an interesting one because he no longer has anywhere to hide. We were doing an award segment last week. I was looking for Norris candidates. I was going through some of the analytic stats and I double clutched and I accidentally sorted like chances allowed per 60 and I put the bottom guys at the top and it was like, boom, Rasmus Sisterlinen, first in the league, the most chances allowed. He's been the worst defensive defenseman in the entire league. 
and you can't blame it on Buffalo anymore. So if enough teams are sort of onto onto them about that or onto him about that, we don't even know for sure if they'll get great offers for us to line in mm. at the deadline. I still think you have no choice but to sell him off. So to me, I agree. You do have to start the rebuild. You still have some good pieces. It could be a reload rather than a rebuild. If you make the right pick, if the Flyers finish low enough, they get someone like Shane Wright this year, yeah. you could suddenly get good again in a hurry because you have enough other young pieces that are still there. Mm. But I think you have to sort of cut your losses right now, except that you have to do a mini blow up. Blow up what you can blow up. Yeah. And then see what happens and, and try and get that true number one scoring set. A San Jose blow up, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Uh, let's do some listener questions now. The first one is from, uh, it, I must have made a typo. It says like Ritual to la Lamppost. I think it's Ritual Lamppost is the Twitter username. And Ritual Lamppost wants to know, will they stop opening the bench door for changing on the fly? Do we need a serious injury to explore this? Well, if you look at NHL history, NHL, NHL loves to do things after the fact. They're a reactor league to everything. And that includes injuries. Uh, we have seen some major rule changes directly as a result of injuries. So right. Max Pacioretty has the horrific injury, breaks his neck, goes into the stanchion. Then you get padding on the stanchion and curved glass between the benches. Clint Malarchuk in 1989 gets the horrific neck, the jugular cut. Then all of a sudden, the league reacts, puts in a rule for those neck protectors. Eventually, they took it away. But in the moment, yeah. they were terrified they reacted. So I do feel like it'll take a major injury. There's been some scary ones over the years, but... I don't think there's been a career ender. I remember one, it was it was Brian Marchman on the Edmonton Oilers where I think he had a seizure on the ice and that wasn't mm. even enough. So it's got to be like a career ender for it to change. But I do think that would bring about change. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. I, I guess, you know, if I were a lawyer, I would say, you know, or, or like risk assessor, it's like guys are really good at jumping over the boards uh but you know what happens if somebody gets hurt jumping over the boards instead of getting in like when you're really tired when you've been stuck out there for like a you know a buck 40 or something sometimes you just want to walk in the door yeah. and not jump over so uh, i i think it can kind of go either way yeah and you could have a, a skate cut a guy when you're, you're jumping in good. yeah that's a fair point uh, next question is from Scott Baker. Scott wants to know, which NHL record is most likely to never be broken? So I have two. One of them is so easy, it's almost cheating. Right. It's, it's Glenn Hall. It's Glenn yeah. Hall's 502 starts in a row. That's yeah. that's like, you can make a case it's the most unbreakable major record in sports. The yeah. game has changed so much. There's no scenario in which that's... Like, the only way that goalies will start playing 502 games in a row again is if we reach a Pokes apocalyptic Mad Max society <laughs> and there's weird Thunderdome hockey games being right. played and people are scourging for food like literally that's that's the environment you need yeah for that many games in a row again so i can't i almost feel bad counting that as my answer i'll say wayne gretzky's points 2857 mm. he's 936 points ahead of second place all time so the gap between him and yarmir auger that gap is almost a hall of fame player yeah. that's how far ahead gretzky is yeah. but you could I, I i think hall is more unbreakable because you could see a world in which Whatever, in 50 years, hockey changes a lot again, and it's all about offense, and there's a new commissioner, and, and suddenly guys can have 250-point season. We don't right. know. Whereas I see no scenario in which you get the Glenn Hall. I totally agree. Yeah, with the Gretzky record, you know, now it seems unattainable, but you know, in terms of how fast and how strong players get... Um, and, you know, I mean, maybe the schedule goes to 90 games when there's 35 teams in the NHL or whatever. Um, whereas with Glenn Hall, like these days, like goalies don't even play 82 games in a row. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have any goalies that play every game in a schedule. So you're, you're stuck right there. Like no current NHL goalie can really get Glenn Hall's record. Yeah. 
right now. No, like, go, they don't even play 20 games in a row. Even exactly. 10 games. Like, if Andre Vasilevsky started like 29 games in a row, there would be people would be building statues. Yeah, for him. really. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's the easy answer, but I mean, that's because it's unbeatable. Yeah, for sure. We can't conceive of anybody breaking that record. Exactly. Okay, we're going to finish off the pod with the rapid fire game. I am the host this week. Are you ready, Mr. Kennedy? I am ready. Okay, question one. Which player have you interviewed the most in your career? Ooh, this is a great question. And I think off the top of my head, it's probably Tyler Sagan. Because I started interviewing him when he was like 17. And I've interviewed him at least once, sometimes like three times every season since. So he's... What, like 30 now? Yeah, give or take. Yeah, so I've probably, you know, between like all-star games and like, you know, when the Bruins were in Toronto, um, and then, you know, like if I, you know, ever talked to like Dallas when they were in Toronto, like I pretty much always, and then in the summer, you know, he trains in Toronto. So yeah, I've probably interviewed Tyler Sagan like 40 times already. Right, okay. I think my answer is Alex Ovechkin. Uh, I've had a lot of Ovechkin interviews, especially recently, but that could be recency bias. Like I've done a lot of those in the last like five or six years. The more accurate answer might be Wayne Simmons because he spent obviously a lot of time as a Philadelphia Flyer, so he traveled, they played the Leafs a lot, but mm. also he's from the Toronto area, so same as Tyler Sagan. He trains in Toronto in the offseason. Yeah. He was around a lot for various things, whether it was you know BioSteel or just other charitable events. Yeah. So I feel like I've crossed paths with Wayne Simmons, maybe even more than Ovechkin. He might be my number one. Mm. Uh, question two. Who are you rooting for on Euphoria? Who am I rooting for? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, I cho- I, w- I would say I cheer for Jules to have a happy, steady life. And right now, I've only seen the first two, but I'm cheering for Cassidy because uh, she looks like she's in a horror movie, and I just hope she survives. Yeah, that's fair. I, I'm worried about her fate this season. I think I- I've-, I've been swept up by, by Le- <laughs> Les Lexi and Fesco. I want to oh, see that happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's where I'm really for at the moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Lexi, she, you know, she tugs at the heartstrings. Uh, to, okay, next question. It sort of ties to the first question. Okay, who is your interview white whale? Someone you've never interviewed, a player that you've always wanted to. Wow. Ah. Oh. You know that's a tough one because I mean, access wise, like I've talked to everybody in the NHL. So, I mean, you're really looking at, you know, it would be like prospects that are still like over in Russia. Um, And even there, like, you know, I interviewed Alexander Paravalov the other day, who's a prospect for the the 2022 draft. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's anybody sort of on that bucket list that I can think of. I know that's a boring answer, but it would have to either be somebody who hasn't come over here uh, and and does not speak English or like a retired player. Yeah, Uh, you're allowed to say retired. Yeah. You know what? I don't think I've ever interviewed Gretzky. Mm -hmm. I think he's the one like I've I've talked or or Lemieux. I think like I've talked to Messier. I've talked to like Guy Lafleur. I talked to Gordie Howe. uh, I talked to Bobby Orr. But I think 
Gretzky and Lemieux, I don't know if I've ever spoken directly to them. Okay. Yeah, Gretzky would be my my all-time pick as well because mm. I've just never never crossed paths for whatever yeah. reason. Current players, it's Artemi Panarin because I can tell he's such an interesting guy, but the language barrier hasn't come down yet. I'm hoping mm. he, if he learns a little more English or I guess if he learns some Russian, uh, then Good we can actually have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it hasn't happened yet because he's just – the barrier is too strong at the moment and you, you don't yeah. really get that access to him. I got him at the World Cup of Hockey. I remember that. Nice. And yeah. did he? I even got Gretzky. How did you guys not get Gretzky? It's just, yeah, I, yeah, I got yeah. him in university. It's just one of those things. Yeah. So I, just, I, sometimes you just. I say that like there's there's players that I like talk to. I forget who it was. I'm like I don't know how we've never. It was oh it was Sean Horkoff. I was talking to the other day, and I'm like I don't know how we never crossed paths when you were a player. We just never did. Sometimes, especially if, if it's if it's a guy who's played a lot of his career in the West, you're right. less likely to cross. cross I paths. tweeted that I was disappointed that Green Day was con- uh, canceled at the World Cup of Hockey, mm-hmm. and I got a message saying, "Hey, well, we can get you one on one with Gretzky." Good consolation. Wow. A good backup, I guess. Wow. Very good consolation. True story. At, at speaking of bands, uh, this is risky. I did this to our editor in chief, Jason K. NHL Awards 2012, he was like, oh, Matt, Nickelback's here. You can interview them. And I looked him in the eyes and said, no. No. (laughs) And I had only been an employee for like six months. And I was like, I just refused. (laughs) Okay. uh, Next question. What is something your kids already do better than you do? Ooh. Oh, I mean, they're better with computers than me for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like they can actually figure things out on their laptops. And and they're going to be better at video games than me pretty Mm -hmm. soon. Okay. There's certain games they're already better at. Yeah. Okay. My youngest is only one, so she's not better than me at many things, I don't think. But sleeping. Yeah, sleeping. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I'd say, but my oldest is five and a half. And she's a better dancer, for sure. Mm. And uh, she's better at coloring, like coloring in the lines. She's already surpassed me. Oh, actually, both my kids are much better at drawing than I am. Okay, there yeah. you go. Um, what is the worst sin you've ever committed in a hockey rink in a, in a, while playing in a game? While playing in a game? Oh, you know what? It's funny. I was a very clean player. Uh, but I do remember one time after a whistle, I just plowed a guy into our net. Yeah, like, like our goalie had made a save. I don't know why I even did it. And somehow I didn't get penalized. But yeah, I just, he was standing there. I guess I thought he was too close to the goalie. And I just body checked him right into the net. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, I did I did a flyby of the other team's bench. I slap shot style. No, I think I think it was because like I I stopped and I, I thought I was onside and I swore and then but I was right in front of the other team's bench and they were like, Oh sorry, buddy, offside and then I took my glove off and I did a flyby. Well, I almost did it on camera there. I, I flipped the bird and did like a flyby of the whole team. And that year I was named the SO more sportsmanlike player. Wow. So I guess the SO voters, The cameras weren't on Yeah, that the time. cameras weren't on. Uh, last question for you is what is a food that you used to hate that you've come around on? So the, the green eggs and ham, if you will. Right, right. Um, mustard. I didn't try mustard until I was like 38. My answer is also mustard. Wow. The double mustard. Double mustard. I didn't come around on mustard until I was 37. Wow. We're, we are mustard, mustard discoverers brothers. at the same time. There you go. And that's a great way to end the podcast. The Mustard Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening.